Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Today on the show, we've got some powerful suggestions for you, and we are about to explore the career of a man who brought so many iconic characters to your childhood TV screen. He played Mark on Lidsville and Eddie Munster on The Munsters. He's Butch Patrick, and he will be joining us shortly. But first, Fritz, what are you recommending for us? All right, well, you've never done this before, but I'm doing it because I took your suggestion last week, which you publicly noted that you had not seen yourself. So I took it upon myself to watch it, and I'm so glad I did. It's called Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. This is a documentary. It's an amazing piece, and it's a great primer. It's a great preliminary understanding for the what we're watching play out in Ukraine right now. It's a documentary made by Evgeny Afinivsky, who just happens to be a resident of Studio City, California, two miles from where we are right now. He was present in the Ukraine during what was called the Maidan Revolution of 2013 to 2014. Maidan Square sits in the middle of Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, as you've seen, sitting in the north-central part of the country. It started with a student demonstration supporting Ukraine being a free and democratic state, among other European countries, and they wanted the ouster of pro-Russian president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych. This revolution prompted Putin to seize Crimea in 2014 and foment revolt in provinces of eastern Ukraine, which became the pro-Russian area called the Donbass, which Putin just last week recognized as an official part of Russia. In this film, you will see the astonishing resilience of the Ukrainian people that we're watching now. They will fight to the death for freedom. Director Evgeny recently told Deadline website, quote, this is all happening right now because Putin was never held responsible for sending Russian bombers to Syria and never held responsible for annexing Crimea. He thinks he can get away with this incursion in Ukraine. And he further goes on to say the Ukrainians got a taste of freedom. They became part of European society and they will not go back. They will not put their weapons down. They will fight until their last drop of blood, end quote. And we're seeing it. This is reality. I have seen this movie now too, Fritz. I, I did my own homework that I assigned to myself. And it, it's just astounding. And I, I think that it, it, for Americans, you know, we we think of Ukraine and Russia as being kind of over there and they're sorting through whatever they're sorting through. And it didn't mean a ton to us until recent events. And now I think it's incumbent upon us to learn more about the Ukrainian people, their history. And when you when you talk about Russian speaking, there's Russia, there's in, in Switzerland, there's German speaking, Italian speaking and French speaking people. It's they're still Swiss. So the language that you speak isn't an excuse for Putin to roll in and say, hey, you guys, we speak the same no. language. He's he's delusional. He's denied them uh, their um, their awareness of their country, of their language, of their humanity, and it's just crazy. And these people are so inspirational. And their president is beyond heroic. He went from a guy who was almost laughed at, sort of uh, he, snickered at, because he's a television comedian in Ukraine. He was laughed at. That was the intention. He, yeah, he's, but 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 I mean, as a political leader, yeah. and now he is the hero of the world. And if 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 Putin does something to kill him or kill his family, they're going to have the largest. Uh, uh, um, 
martyr in the history of the world on their hands. It, it, they're very, very inspirational. I'm, I'm praying that this ends well. But anyway, if you want to learn about this, it's a great primer to sort of understand the energy that goes through the Ukrainian population and what gives them their drive. They're really a hardy people. They are. They consider themselves all soldiers at this yeah, point, yeah. and they are. Uh, so I think you should watch that, Winter on Fire. It's excellent. And I'm going to pick uh, on Apple Plus, Lincoln's Dilemma. It is a four-part series on Apple Plus based on acclaimed historian David S. Reynolds' award-winning book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. The series features insights from a diverse range of journalists, educators, and Lincoln scholars, as well as rare archival materials that offer a more nuanced look at the man dubbed the Great Emancipator, an overly indulgent moniker considering how actively enslaved people participated in the procurement of their own freedom. Formerly enslaved people fighting for the Union provided the turning point needed to win the war. Set against the backdrop of the Civil War, Lincoln's Dilemma also gives voice to the narratives of enslaved people, shaping a more complete view of an America divided over issues including economy, race, and humanity, and underscoring Lincoln's initial battle to save the country. Lincoln was a Republican. It was then a brand new progressive party. The ideologies of Republicans and Democrats have swapped over the last 160 years. Lincoln's views and leanings adjusted and evolved as he learned and grew. For example, his friendship with Frederick Douglass was important and illuminating. Much like Biden, he was actually more progressive than the politics of his time would realistically support, and he was a wise and tactical politician. He understood timing and priorities, and that to get something done, you often had to first get something else done that seemed like less of a priority, but was essential in advancing the ultimate agenda. Like any great fictional hero, Lincoln begins his journey with one goal, in Lincoln's case, to preserve the Union. And along the way, he discovers that his true goal is abolishing slavery and honoring the humanity of African-American people. His genius is recognizing that in his journey, his goals are not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, complementary. Lincoln's Dilemma is on Apple+. Plus. Yeah, and there was an arc in his learning. There was a learning curve that he did because at the beginning of his political career, he was one of those people who thought maybe the uh, African-Americans should have their own country, Liberia, send them all back there because he never foresaw a future in which we could all get along and they could meld in with the white population. Didn't think it was possible. So at the beginning of his political career, he was exactly the opposite of where he ended up. Not exactly the opposite. I mean, I think he was always a humane person. He, he could not stand the concept of people being enslaved, but he didn't know how to solve the problem. So yeah. he was he was kind of like spitballing ideas like, hey, we could try this. And then Frederick Douglass was like, no, <laughs> we built this country. We're staying here yeah. mm -hmm. with you guys. Um, I would like to welcome Butch Patrick to the show. Hello, Butch. How are you? <laughs> I now know how Frank Gorshin must have felt following the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. Butch Patrick. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm very happy to be here, and I was very intently listening to everything you had to say. Very informative, and, and like I say, it's what's going on in Ukraine is just beyond belief, and God bless them all. 
God bless him. Exactly. I'm going to introduce you a little bit here, Butch. Butch Patrick okay. is an American actor who began his professional career at the age of seven. And by the time he was nine, was the go-to kid actor, appearing in Ben Casey, Bonanza, My Favorite Martian, Mr. Ed, Rawhide, The Real McCoys, and the list goes on and on. Butch is best known for his roles as boy werewolf, Eddie Munster on The Munsters, and as Mark, a teenager who falls into a giant top hat and finds himself in a magical land of hats, terrorized by a villainous Charles Nelson Riley on ABC Saturday morning series called Lidsville. Like, you know, that's a premise that could easily happen. So (laughs) be forewarned. Welcome, Butch. Um, I want to open by asking you this critical question. Herman is a Frankenstein monster. Lily is a vampire. Eddie is a werewolf. Do you think that Herman and Lily are Eddie's birth parents? Uh, Perhaps he was adopted. But then again, we're in television world, so it's called creative license. Ah. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> yeah. That Well, that makes everything make sense. On your YouTube channel, and I, I want to plug it for a second, it's called... Coach to Coast. Yeah, you do Still a great job. A. You're very hosty. You're very good okay. at hosting. And one of my favorite episodes was the one where you tell the amazing story of being on The Monkees. You were the envy of every kid in your neighborhood, I'm sure. Yeah, that was a, it was a great time for a 14-year-old kid to... Uh, to go back to junior high school, having spent a week with the hottest guys in the, in the world at the moment, you know, at the time. Pretty, pretty cool. Hey, Butch, uh, one, one of the things that made the Munsters a phenomenon was the show was only on for two years, 64 to 66. Yet it has taken its place in the pantheon of great television shows that people will never forget, particularly baby boomers like us. What do you think it was that sort of kept that thing in the consciousness of people over the last 50 years? Well, a, a couple things. Number one, it was very well produced. Uh, the quality of the writing and the talent and the guest stars and the makeup and the special effects was top notch. They they kind of got lightning in a bottle because the producers of Leave it to Beaver, who was out at Universal Studios, had done very, very well with a sitcom from a child's point of view, kind of like the kids were the stars in the forefront. And the family was behind them. So what they did is they took the Universal Studio monster franchises, which Universal was the monster studio. And they they did the best Frankensteins and Draculas and all of the great monster movies of the 40s and 50s came out of Universal. And they kind of mushed them together into this family friendly characters who were a typical American family, except for their looks. And then they threw in a beautiful blonde that we found to be the oddball. They did a role reversal on who was right, you know, who was beautiful and who was this. And they touched upon um social commentary of the 60s of um i guess i guess we would you would have to just call it you know um there was like there was there was there was interracial stuff going on being different and blended families oh that's exactly right i was gonna say a lot of upheaval in the 60s so what they did is they very softly kind of worked that into the scripts about you don't want to live next door to the monsters or the monsters are scary but but during the storylines they very much always came up at the end of the thing with a moral that was learned by by eddie or someone at the family dinner table we always sat down to dinner and at the end of the day uh they were they were likable people and don't judge them by their appearance oh wow it's interesting like as a kid you know watching it as a kid i never saw it from that point of view we just always thought it was funny that they thought that marilyn was the one who wasn't cute but 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 your dad, Herman, he had a lot of the similar wisdom of Ward Cleaver. He was a he was they were good parents. 
They were gr- they were great parents. In fact, one of the um, episodes where Eddie grew, grows a beard because he's being called Shorty, and at the dinner table, the beard comes off, and you know Herman, it's got a hundred million up, you know downloads of Herman giving me this little speech about did you learn anything? Uh, yes, I'll never make fun of Mom's soup again. He goes, no, it's it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter if you're tall or thin or fat or ugly or or ugly or handsome or what color your skin is. It matters the strength of your character and the size of your heart. And that's one of the best speeches ever given by a father to anybody. Wow. And it just happens to have been on the Munsters. Most definitely. And, and now the Adams family was out at a similar time. And you made a very interesting comment about um, you were asked if, if, if the Munsters were competitive with the Adams family. And you said, no, quite the opposite. Uh, the Munsters drafted on the fame of the Adams family and the reverse of that, that you both fed into the enthusiasm of the other show. Yeah, and I said, had we been head to head, it would have been a problem because you would have had to choose. But because we were different nights and different networks, you you may have preferred one. But I guarantee most people watch them both and just happen to have a favorite. So we sort of uh, were inspirational for each other. Something that's that's interesting about your career, Butch, is that, you know, you 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 had an iconic role as a child actor, but you only spent two years playing that role, which gave you a lot of time to appear on other things and to have all of the experiences with all of the people that us kids were watching on Mm -hmm. TV, you know them because you were on the set with them at some place or another. So we're going to do a little thing that I'm going to call guest star roulette. And I'm going to go through the list of people that you've worked with and maybe you could tell a story about one of them. So I'm just going to name some of them and and then pick one. And then Fritz is going to pick one. Does that sound okay, Butch? Sure. Okay. So Butch Patrick has worked with Judy Garland, Burt Lancaster, Eddie Albert, Jane Wyatt, Bobby Darren, Walter Brennan, Buddy Ebsen, Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, Vincent Price, Edward G. Robinson, Robert Taylor, Henry Fonda, Sidney Poitier, John Carradine, Andy Griffith, Richard Crenna, Bill Bixby, Ray Walston, Larry Hagman, Fred McMurray, Dick Clark, Wally Cox, Wayne Newton. I'm going to go back to the beginning and pick Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Yeah. Um, yes, that was a movie called A Child is Waiting, and it happened to be directed by the very famous and artistically, um, you know, very good director, John Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. He directed that, and um, Judy was on there with Burt Lancaster, was also in that movie. And at that time, you know, I didn't really have a lot of scenes with her, but she was on the set. And a lot of times you get to know someone a lot better behind the scenes mm-hmm. than you do on the scenes. And she was very pleasant, very, I mean, I was enamored with her because I knew her, that she was in The Wizard of Oz, and <laughs> that's kind of how I related to her. Yeah. But Burt Lancaster was the one that really, I was, you know, I was in awe of because I just thought he was like the coolest guy. I remember his, his uh, pirate movies. He was a gymnast. He was a man's man. He was just handsome. And, just, you know, he was just a cool guy that, that I thought that I looked up to. So between the two of them, it was a really good experience. One of the shows that was appointment television in our house was The Real McCoys. I, I remember the opening of that show. I remember the picture of the mailbox. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I remember Walter Brennan f- f- somehow, although my grandfather didn't have a limp, seemed like a surrogate grandfather to me for some reason. I just loved that show. So talk about Walter Brennan and doing that and Richard Crenna and that group. That's that's a very good one because what happened was the uh, the real McCoys had gone off the air and they resurrected it on another network for one final season and what they did is they didn't have um, the fa- they all they had was Luke Papina and Amos mm-hmm. they didn't have uh, Sugar Babe they didn't have Little Luke and they didn't have Cassie so 
the um, the year that I did it, I played the neighbor child next door who my mom was a uh, a widower or widow and she inherited the farm and I would ride my pony over and visit them a lot. And I kind of worked myself into being kind of like an adopted son to Luke. And he, you know, he would always come to the rescue and this and that. But the big thing about that, and I love Richard Crenna because I knew him on our Miss Brooks. You know, that's how far back I go watching wow. television. <laughs> but my mom was the one that turned me on to Walter Brennan and his Academy Awards and how great of an actor he was. And, you know, he won three uh, supporting actor awards in a row back in the uh, in the 30s and early 40s. I mean, he was a you know, he was a bona fide major player in, in Hollywood, but he was such a wonderful guy. And the character that he had, you know, is, with his little hitch and his giddy up. It was really a great experience because, number one, I got to ride horses. I spent a lot of time outside, got to know Richard Crenna. And um, it was right before the Munsters. And that that part actually probably got me the uh, the character Eddie because of what they saw on The Real McCoy's. So um, I don't. Do you know a director uh, by the name of Bruce Bilson? I know the name. Bruce started out as an AD on the Andy Griffith Show, and then directed a couple of episodes of The Real McCoys. And he told a great story about Walter Brennan. He said Walter raised turkeys or something at a turkey farm, and he would take orders. Uh, for uh, turkeys for people around Thanksgiving. And the first time he did it, everybody thought he was just making a gift of the turkeys to everybody. But as it turns out, he plunked the, the turkey down in their dressing room or something and say, you owe me $33 or something. He decided to charge <laughs> he was, for the he turkeys. Was a man. Yeah. He was <laughs> selling turkeys. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's industrious. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, was that during the time period when he had a hit record? Uh, you know, uh, that's a good question. It was around that time. It was, it was definitely in the period piece. Yes, I believe it was. Yeah, because it, I'm sure you can find the record. I'm not sure the title of it. It has to, it, it, it will make you cry no matter when you listen to it, no matter what time of day, no matter what else you're doing. Yes. If you listen to Walter Brennan's hit record, you will cry. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Andy Griffith as long as we're on Andy Griffith. Sure. Tell us what you did with him. Well, Andy Griffith uh, had a actually he had a series that didn't that didn't succeed. It was called Headmaster, oh. and I did I think I did the pilot for it actually. I think it was the first episode. It was a very he ran a, uh, a school, and I played um, a kid who at the, at the time it was about, I think I was eighteen years old, seventeen eighteen years old. The um, the episode was called. Um, tune in or drop out or something like the Timothy Leary thing. Mm-hmm. But I played a troubled youth who overdosed on drugs and dies. But it was called Headmaster, and we worked together for three or four days. I thought he was great. He was wonderful. Uh, super duper guy. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed his company very much. And and I was a big Andy Griffith fan all the way back to uh, No Time for Sergeants, you know? Wow. Yeah, same. So let's do a little of your backstory. You were born right here, Inglewood, California. So you probably yes. watched the Super Bowl in that beautiful new stadium with great pride. Look at look what they did to Inglewood. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My grandmother had a house over in Inglewood at the time, back in the early 50s, late 40s. And um, she, uh, my uncle was a jockey at uh, Hollywood Park. So we lived wow. pretty close to Hollywood mm-hmm. Park. Uh, he came up through the ranks uh, as a bug, uh, bug boy with uh, Willie Shoemaker. My uncle grew one summer, grew out of being a jockey, obviously, because you have to keep a weight. And once he grew up to being 5'7 and 130, his jockeying days were over, but he still hung around the track. My grandmother enjoyed the track. And my other uncle 
from my uh, from my dad's side um supplied horses to the studios so i was always around horses and the racetrack and i enjoyed it very much but um back then um we moved out of inglewood over to gardena when i was about in the first grade and that's pretty much where i grew up as a city called gardena where they used to have these poker rooms mm-hmm. and poker clubs back when there were no there was no gambling in the la area or in california the bicycle these- club they're still open down there the Not Gardena that I know well, the anything about Club opened. That was the first club to open when Gardena lost the monopoly that they had for ah. about 30 years. Mm-hmm. So we lived in Gardena. My dad was a general partner in the Rainbow and the Monterey Club, and I actually worked in the gaming industry off and on. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I grew up was Inglewood because of literally because of Hollywood Park. Awesome. And, and talk about your discovery and, and the support that your sister gave you that sort of gave you a gentle, loving nudge into the business thinking you had chops. You mean when I started working? Yes. When you oh, you, well, weren't, you, my, you were discovered by somebody from the business as you were walking around town and then your sister kind of urged you into it. Yes. What, they, what was going on at the time, uh, a gentleman had, that had... Uh, his sights on being mayor of Gardena wanted to get an endorsement from my dad or Michelle's dad. And they thought it would be a good idea to maybe put Michelle into some print modeling or get her in the movies, which would make Dave happy. And, you know, this, everybody would be, everybody would, you know, be good. So what happened was is Mary Grady, who was the first child agency in Hollywood had just opened the doors and Michelle went up for her photograph for her photo shoot. And I went along with her and the gentleman's name was Amos Carr. And at the time, Amos Carr was the go-to photographer in Hollywood for all young child actors. That was his, that was his strength. So after he was done with Michelle, he said, I like the look of, uh, is it Butch? And my mom goes, yeah, his name is Butch. She goes, I would like to take a couple photos for him just for my own files and stuff. And she said, that that would be fine. And he took a picture of me with this hat and this kind of this expression that he liked. And he put it in the window of his studio on Hollywood Boulevard. And lo and behold, uh, not too long later, uh, not too not, not too much later, a director named uh, Randy Hood and George W. George, a producer, were walking by and still looking to cast the youngest son of this new movie um, of Eddie Albert and Jane Wyatt called The Two Little Bears. But Brenda Lee was a 15-year-old older sister. Uh, Soupy Sales was the com- comic, uh, comic relief cop. And so on and this. I, w- I got an interview. They hired me with no experience and the uh, by the time the six-week shoot was up, I had picked up a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial, and I had picked up uh, General Hospital. And how old were you at the time? Uh, seven. That's just crazy. And how, do you remember how it was explained to you what you were doing and what was expected of you? Because it must have seemed very different from just watching TV, where it looks one way, and then you go on a set, and suddenly it's expected that you're going to perform. Like, how was it explained to you? I got a very funny story about that, so I'll tell you. What happened was, is uh, when I went back home, Mary called and said they would like to hire Butch. My mom said, you want to do a movie? And I said, well, you know, um, you know, will I make money? And they go, yeah, I guess, because, you know, I had aspirations of being a race car driver someday. And then I said, do I have to go back to second grade over here? And she goes, no. I go, let's do it. <laughs> so I, uh, the funny part about it was, is as I was working on the set, my older brother, who was an experienced kid actor, was kind of picking on me a little bit and one day he pushed me and i stumbled and i fell into the banister of the um of the of the of the, of the railing of the of the steps and i knocked my tooth out and i got up and i'm crying and there's blood and they stop and i go that's it i quit and and they go what and they go i don't want to do this anymore i quit 
And they go, well, you can't quit. I go, well, I quit. <laughs> I didn't have a concept of the show must go on. It was like, I'm done. Uh, this is not for me. So <laughs> they literally over. took me out for ice cream and talked me off the ledge and <laughs> took, took Donnie aside and said, if you ever touch that kid again, we'll fire you. <laughs> who was it? Who was the kid that pushed it was your you? Brother. It was his, brother. His name was Donnie Carter was his name. He played your brother on the in the movie. He played my older brother. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to do a little bit of uh, TV show roulette, if that's okay. okay. So some of the shows that Butch has appeared on include General Hospital, The Real McCoys, My Three Sons, My Favorite Martian, The Munsters, Mr. Ed, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Rawhide, Daniel Boone, The Wonderful World of Disney, The Monkees, Adam 12, Family Affair, The Dating Game, I Dream of Jeannie, Lidsville, American Bandstand, The Rose Parade, and Ironside. Fritz, you go first. Well, that's what I said earlier. I mean, all these shows that you did, guest appearances on The Real McCoys, My Three Sons, My Favorite Marksman, these were all iconic shows of the time period. Gunsmoke bore a lot of new stars. Uh, uh, Burt Reynolds, I just noticed, was on several episodes. That talk about that experience. That was, I mean, that was like the longest running episodic in the history of television or something. Well, I enjoyed doing Westerns, so I was very happy to do, you know, the Gunsmokes. I did, I did like seven different Westerns, but the Gunsmoke was, I was very happy to do. I was a big fan of the show. Uh, at the time I did it, Festus had taken over for Dennis Weaver. Yeah. He was the sidekick or the or the, uh, the, the deputy. Mm-hmm. And I remember Ken Curtis from an old series called Ripcord. Oh, it was a yeah. series where guys would parachute in and, you know, save the day. And I was really enamored with that. So I was impressed. With him being from Ripcord. Uh-huh. Now, little did I know, I mean, not to jump too far forward, but little did I know, last year I did a appearance at the Roy Rogers Museum and Festival, and the Sons of the Pioneers were performing. Oh, my. Now, I had heard of them, but I had no idea that Ken Curtis was once a member of the Sons of the Pioneers wow. as a singer. Ken Curtis is a fine, fine singer. And I did not know that. They're one of the great harmony groups of all time in the 30s. They had, and Roy Rogers was, I don't know, he was their high tenor or something. Yeah, they they they, they had hit records. And changed his name. Exactly. So Dusty Rogers was there and Dodie Rogers was there. But the the thing with the Ken Curtis connection was I remembered him from something totally different than Festus, Mm -hmm. but I did enjoy the show. and, And the one thing I remember the most was Jim Garner. I knew him from The Thing. I knew that he was the, the monster in the movie The Thing. So it's this six degrees of separation in Hollywood where you really get a chance to see people in another, you know, in another uh, window or, 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 or another uh, look. But the thing about James Garner, he was so darn tall and I was so short. It was like before Herman Munster. Well, Jim Garner was like the biggest guy I ever worked with. And they had this giant rocking chair for him that I thought. It was like one of those things maybe you take photos at when you're a little kid and you plop you up in it. It's a Lily Tomlin rocking chair. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Edith. Edith's chair. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. I mean, they, they show they show Gunsmoke on MeTV. And if you catch it, I, I didn't appreciate this as a kid. The scripts are really good. It's a well thought out show. Great morality tales, yes. each one. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Miss Kitty didn't seem at all like she seemed like an executive assistant. She didn't seem like <laughs> the madam in a brothel no, or whatever. She had it going on. But but you were talking about height. Um, uh, your height and in comparison to Herman Munster had something to do with you being cast. Am I correct? Because you were so much shorter and he was so much taller and that, and that, 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 uh, the difference made a difference. Also, there's a funny story about, uh, your teeth were sort of canine at the time. So you didn't need prosthetic teeth because you actually look like you had werewolf teeth. 
No, the, my eye teeth stuck straight out and it didn't hurt because I could, you know, like, uh, grip, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, I could pinch my mouth and my teeth would still stick out. <laughs> Uh, purse my lips, I guess was the word. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the, the height factor with Fred, what happened with the Munsters is like a lot of times kids in a series are more, they're not really considered to be a main character at times. They sort of set up a scene, they come in, situation arises, they leave and the, and the adults then move on with the scene and the kids are sort of seen in, in, at various stages of uh, importance. But what happened was for me, they found that I could handle dialogue and they started writing more and more scripts featuring father and son shows mm -hmm. because F Fred was such a great TV dad. And mm -hmm. then they found that it was interesting and fun with the student teacher dynamic to where the seven foot tall, lovable Herman becomes the student and the short, younger Eddie becomes the teacher. And they have these conversations to where they allow me to be using big words and spelling things and doing this and doing that, where Herman was never considered to be dumb. He was considered to be childlike and mm -hmm. sweet and 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 um naive i guess yeah naive yeah. Would be a good he word. was kind of so, like forrest gump where he was entirely moral but he wasn't yes. the brightest dad on the block i lucked out because you know going back to the to the question about being short and and it worked out well because i was small for my age which is great in hollywood but i was also mentally a, a little bit ahead of my time so mm -hmm. it worked out well that i would they used to call me a 39 year old well, today you're not supposed to say the word, but they called me a 39 year old midget. Today it would be a little person. Mm -hmm. And because they go, there's no way this kid's 11 years old. He's way too wise for his, for his size and his age. So it worked out well. And the fact that I could handle dialogue and do things, I didn't make too many mistakes, which is important in TV production because it's, it's time and it's money. And, and if you do your job well, and you're, you know, you know, your lines, hit your mark and do your thing. It makes the, uh, the adults respect you even more. Yeah. Yeah, they're, it, it's a business. They're running a business. Are you ready it to is. play? Are you ready to play some monsters trivia? Oh boy, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I am, but I hope. I hope. I, uh, and it's I hope okay if you get it wrong because I have the answers okay. written down here on my iPad. Okay. Um, Marilyn lives with her uncle Herman and Aunt Lily. Who is actually her blood relative? Which one? Well, her her Lily is her aunt. Right. Herman mentions that Marilyn is Lily's sister's child. Afterwards, saying no one on my side ever looked like that. That's Mar correct. Marilyn is one of the show's great mysteries. We are never told who her parents are, where they are, or why she's normal. I guess it was just like a, you know, kind of a rogue gene that, you know, she inherited. Um, do you want to ask one, Fritz? Do you have these? Yeah. Um, let's ask one about who played and became a cast member in a, or rather, actually starred in a Stephen King movie. Well, that would be Fred Gwynn in Pet Cemetery. Exactly. Got it. Got the it. character's name was Judd Crandall. Two, you're two for, you're two for. Oh. And he buried his pet spot out in the cemetery across the street. Oh, wow. Which was the name of our dragon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, when the rock group, the Standells, sought refuge in the Munsters' house, what song did they perform? They sang two. They, they did one song called Do the Ringo, and then they sang the Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Absolutely correct. Well, the you have a great memory. Yeah, the Standells were trying to escape from their screaming fans and couldn't find a better place than the Munsters' house. Do you have one, Fritz? Where was the Munsters' home telephone physically located? 
Oh, that's an easy one. That's the upright coffin, but in the uh, in the hidden panel on the wall by the stairway. Right. You pulled a rope and the doors of a coffin would open to make a call. I wonder if it would now be an iPhone that you'd get if you pulled the rope. When Grandpa made a potion to help Eddie grow, what did he do instead? That's the one where I grew a beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a mustache. Yeah. It looked like Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Who played Eddie's favorite television monster, Zombo? The one and only Louis Nye. Oh, what was that like? Wow. Oh, he was great. And, you know, it's funny because the uh, the Beverly Hillbillies were on a year or two prior to the Munsters, and I, 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 I knew him as Sonny Drysdale. <laughs> That's right. Wow. <laughs> Sonny Drysdale. I just remember him on the Steve Allen show, and he didn't even have to say anything, and he made me laugh. He was such a funny man. So he was he was we had we had a lot of talent come through that guest starred early in their careers. You know, when you look Frank, I mean, reference to Frank Gorshin, mm-hmm. uh, we had Don Rickles, we had Harvey Corman. You know, we, we just we had a ton of people. We were very, very lucky to have a quality laden uh, guest star list. That's so that's like what a treat for a kid, because it, it sounds like you were the type of kid who was appreciative of all the show business history that you were getting to physically personally enjoy well I, I tell people i go i was the luckiest kid on the planet because two things were occurring number one it was a great show and you know i got the ride around in the coolest hot rods and I, <laughs> as I told you earlier i loved cars and i developed a lifelong friendship with george barris but when i had free time what do kids like to do they like to go explore at least i did and instead of walking down the street looking for a construction site to go climb on, I had the back lot of Universal Studios and every soundstage at my disposal. And I took full advantage of it. And I was very appreciative of the fact that I could go do this because I knew it was special. And I knew when we drove in the front gate, we were going into some, you know, something like a Disneyland of sorts where not everybody was privy to behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. You mentioned George Barris. Barris. George uh, built the Munster cars and the Batman cars, and he's at Mm -hmm. an office right in Toluca Lake, like three blocks from my house, and I knew George, and just looking in the window of his studio was so much fun. But you continued the tradition with the Munsters cars, and don't you own those, or did it one time and sort of toured them around the United States? I don't own a Barris car. I do own a Munster coach and a Dragula. Um, the Barris cars, the number one is in a museum. Number two is, is still with the family. Number three is in my car club, but the one that I have is a Chevy powered, but it's a very nice car. And I actually enjoy doing a lot of traveling around the country, doing automotive events with my cars. And, uh, it's turned out to be something really, really cool. I never became the race car driver I wanted to be, but (laughs) I haven't had a chance to do a lot of fun stuff of the automotive world. Wow. That's really, that's spectacular. I mean, it's it's interesting how all of our gifts and talents and experiences can come together and create these opportunities for us. That's really yeah. that's really wonderful. Now, if when one researches Butch Patrick on the internet, which I'm sure you've seen, one one finds an episode of Christina's Court, within which you are attempting to reclaim your website Monsters.com. Would you like to talk about that? Yes, uh, I was basically introduced to a, a person and we became friends and he was an, an IP guy. Um, I'm not, or I, I wasn't very computer savvy. And unfortunately, uh, once you bring in someone to handle your IP address, you're pretty much beholden to them and they control you and they own it. And it's very difficult to recover it back if they choose to not want to give it back. 
And that's what happened. And we obviously the friendship went out the window and uh, he I had pretty much resigned myself that I wasn't ever going to get it. And I guess these court shows look for interesting cases to bring on camera that that would be entertaining to their fan base and their audience. So I was contacted and they said, if you'd come on courtroom with us, we'll, um, you know, we'll put the bill and we'll make sure you get it back. And whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant, you know, this or that. And the, the guy that took it, Mr. Mickey Keats, flip-flopped twice whether he wanted to be the defendant or the plaintiff. And I said, I don't really care. I can play both sides. I, I'm just going to go up and tell the truth and get my, get my website back, which mm-hmm. we did. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was an interesting little, uh, they actually had us fly on the same plane together too, which was kind of a weird, <laughs> you know, they didn't think that one through. So I was like two rows behind him. I couldn't believe he was on the plane with me. It was like, Oh my God. But it all worked out for the best. When you got your website back. So when we go yes. on monster, oh, oh, monsters. monsters.com, what do we find there? Oh yeah. It's just, it's just basically, uh, it, it has my schedule, my store, um, stories about the cast. It's just everything that you would like to know about monsters. If you really want to do get into it more is I have a official monsters fan group that now has 51,000 members. Wow. Yeah. It's growing. It grows exponentially. And then now also Rob zombie is making the new monster movie, as you may know, and that's causing a lot of excitement to a lot of people. I actually know Rob very well. And, um, it's, I think it's going to be really good. And I'm really happy that, uh, when it comes out, I think people are going to be really pleasantly surprised because I know they're, they're wondering how it's going to be seen and received because of Rob's, you know, the style of his movies. But I can tell you that this is this is going to be fine. It's going to be very good. Have you shot it yet? Uh, I'm not involved in the movie. I'm not oh. I'm not in it. But but I have seen um, a little bit of the trailers and stuff. Yeah. Oh, so what's the tone? But, what can you tell us? I can't tell you. OK, got it. I'm going to talk a little bit about your book. You have you have a few books. You have a uh, it, it's not a coffee table book. It's a coffin table book. Tell us about that. Um. In in 2013, uh, the the Munsters was coming up on a 50th anniversary of September 24th, 2014. So I decided, as I sat at tables at conventions and I met people, I always was inspired by how much the show had meant to so many people. And they watched TV. They were they were you you had this extended family around the country that I never was aware of, and they always had these very heartwarming stories about what the show meant to them watching it with a favorite uncle or a, or a mom or a grandmother that's now passed. And I just decided that if I just take these stories and put them into a book form, it would make an interesting book. And then hence the name Munster Memories. But I also then sought out people that were involved with the show that were still alive, um, got stories from them, put in my own two cents here and there. And then I also got the Munster Super Collectors because the toys and the memorabilia uh, market is so big and the Munsters is one of the more um, collectible groups of of, uh, of of TV merchandise and memorabilia up there with Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And for a movie, Star Wars, but for TV, it's Star Trek and the Munsters. Wow. And I kind of mushed them all together into a book form, and it came out September 24th, 2014, to the day, 50 years to the oh. day of the, of the premiere of the year. And I only made 100 of them, and they're very hardcover, rectangular, and I made 100 of them for the for the hardcore collectors, which everybody loved it. And then I made a paperback version that I've been selling ever since. Now, here's a really personal and inappropriate question for you, Butch. Do you still participate in the sale of Munster's memorabilia as a character? What I do is when I go on, when I go out on conventions or I take my cars on the road, I, uh, a friend of mine with Rock Rebel Shop has the licensing of the Munster's t-shirts and this and that. So what I do is I buy... Munster memorabilia and merchandise from 
them and then I will resell it at my table, autograph or not autograph and this and that. And I do have, I have a line of coffee. I have uh, the book. I have the DVD. Uh, Rob Zombie and I did commentary on the Munster Go Home Blu-ray recently. So at my table, I've got about 12 or 14 different items when I go out as opposed to just 8 by 10 photos. Oh, cool. That's good. And you have your book, too. You have uh, Your book is called Eddie Munster, a.k.a. Butch Patrick, the untold story of his early Hollywooda, coulda, shoulda years. That book I do not uh, participate in anymore. That right. was written by a Helen Darris, who at the time back in the 2005-2006 region, she offered to write a book, which she did, and we went around the country uh, occasionally. We have since parted ways back in 2000, I think about eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has the book. I occasionally see it come across my table with her signature. I sign it, but I'm no, uh, that's, that's something that I'm not associated with. Okay. Would you want to tell your story in a way that that felt kind of organic to you in in some sort of book form? Well, I'm going to sometime. uh, It takes a lot. There's a lot of work involved in doing a book. I was really not aware of of what really went went into it. And Kevin Burns, who recently passed away, who was a very dear friend, but he was also a major monster collector and a producer with Prometheus Films and Prometheus Productions, excuse me. And he passed away a couple of years ago, but he told me, he goes, you need to do a real book about you now. He goes, because you may or may not know, I, I survived cancer. I'm 11 years sober. I had a 41 year run with alcohol and drugs through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And he says, now he goes, you've come so far and you've done so well that I think people would be, you know, you, it could be beneficial. Your life story uh, could help a lot of people. So I may wind up doing it but right now. Um, it's not in the cards because it just requires so much work. Got it, got it, got it. I, I want to talk about that, Butch, and, and I want to connect your sobriety, congratulations mm-hmm. on that, with the whole universe of being a child star. And I, I know you must have some recommendations for the parents of children who might be launching on a Hollywood career and things, uh, a cautionary items to look out for. And uh, you made a really interesting comment. Uh, uh, you know, you, you had stopped some of your major acting by the time you were still a young person and imbibed in drugs and alcohol. But it was not only the Hollywood syndrome that got you into that. It was the time and that behavior was accepted. So it made it harder not to do it. Well, Paul Peterson, uh, who formed a minor consideration, mm-hmm. was a child actor, musketeer and uh, dear friend. But he... Um, saw when Rusty Hamer, his dear friend, died from the Danny Thomas show, he decided to open a minor consideration to help other kid actors, ex-kid actors, current and past, who might be in trouble. Um, So what happened was I actually toured around with a a woman named Julie Matthews who had a company called How to Get Into Show Business the Right Way. And a lot of it had to do with, because I was a child actor and now I was an adult directing these screen tests, I met a lot of kids with their parents and, you know, and the, the, the dynamic of the, the child parent relationship. And I guess I was qualified to speak to both of them. And what I told them was, I go, the hardest part was to see a, a kid that really didn't have the talent, but had the desire, but they didn't have the talent. It wasn't going to happen for them. And it's, and you don't want to break their heart and you don't want to crush their dreams, but at the same time, you don't want to instill a sense of false hope and, and have them just be, it's a, it can be difficult to be rejected over and over and over and over. And if they're not going to make it. So I came up with this thing that seemed to work. 
And what I did was I said, as long as you're getting into acting and you're doing it for the right reasons, for its enjoyment and everything, and, you know, it'll help you in whatever walk of life you decide to go into, your communication skills and your social skills will all benefit from what you're doing right now. But like a football player or a high school star, there's a good chance you may not make it. There's probably a very good chance you're not going to make it to the upper echelon. But as long as you're happy doing it for the right reasons, it's a great thing to do. But if you're determined to be in the movie industry, if that's what you if that's what you want to do, my recommendation is find out what you're good at, go to a movie and look at all those thousands of names at the <laughs> end of the credits yeah. and find one of those things and pursue that because you'll get two things. You'll be in the movie industry, you'll be making a paycheck, you'll be getting good benefits and you'll have job security. And as long as you don't have to be in front of the camera, that's what I would recommend you do. I love that. And do it for the right reasons. That's amazing because it, that, that, there's no exposure. There's no representation that, you know, kids watch all kinds of media. And now kids are not only watching media, they're all in front of the camera because everyone has a television studio in their pocket. So, you know, you've got kids who are who who are longing for that attention because all humans long it to right. be to noticed or to be appreciated and to be of value well, and so and there's also yeah. there's also one other thing that i don't i've never played video games in my life i was a pinball guy a pool you know pool table that darts but i never was a video gamer but now the video game industry has surpassed the revenues for studios of the movies mm-hmm. so there's also that world, that world. for kids that they want to get into something that would be entertaining and fun and edgy and, and good there's an other the horizon that I don't even know anything about, but I do know this, the the downside of the industry wasn't really the industry because the industry is pretty much the same. It's the rules of engagement are still there. I noticed most, it's not for everybody. It's a case by case situation, but I noticed most of the difficulties that kids had could come from the home life because a lot of people aren't prepared to know. They just see the kid going to work. Well, one of the, one of the parents has to take the kid to work. That separates somebody at home. Mm-hmm. The other kids at home can possibly get jealous and envious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can cause problems with money. It can cause problems with someone's, you know, away from the house and they're not doing what they used to do. And, and they got to bring in a third party. There's a lot of contributing factors. That's not all rosy to one kid becoming a movie star. Mm-hmm. The rest of the family has to adjust to it. And sometimes it doesn't work that well. And then there's a lot of stage moms or stage aunts or stage cousins who are trying to give advice to a kid who's trying to appease them while still trying to appease the director. Oh, and he gets caught in the crossfire. Right. And then there's that whole power dynamic shift where the mom could say, you're not going to that party. And the kid could say, I, I'm, I'm wondering yeah. who just paid the mortgage because right. I think it was me. And, well, and then and to add also to the period of the 60s, you know, you got to understand, Paul Peterson said it best. He says, you know, everybody wanted to be your friend. Nobody told Elvis no. Nobody told Michael Jackson no. Nobody told any movie star no because they wanted to be their friend. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to possibly say something that would alienate them and, and, and make them not be privy to it, unfortunately. But growing up in the 60s in Hollywood, if you wanted to go out and ha- I mean, I would have partied whether it was whether I was an actor or not. I mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to go to Woodstock and I couldn't wait to smoke a joint. I mean, that was mo- that was my calling. I happened to be alive in the 60s and I happened to have access to the stuff because of Hollywood. But I would have found it out. I would have found it somewhere else. I just happened to enjoy that and I did it well. And for me, I wanted to be accepted by my peers. And for me to do that was to have a cool car and throw parties and invite people over to my house mm-hmm. because I wanted to be accepted mm-hmm. as a regular guy. Who was it that you knew you could depend on to speak to and tell you the truth? Who did I who did I go to to tell me the truth? Yeah. Was there anyone? 
I didn't really have, I would, I would, I'm kind of naive. I was pretty much thinking everybody was telling me the truth. I was just not, not very uh, worldly. I had grown up in a, you know, I was on my own um, when I was 16 years old. I went up for an interview for a friend. I drove a friend to an interview. When he came out, the producer spotted me and I went in for the interview and they went, I wound up getting the part. Mm-hmm. But what happened was three days later, I'm in Brazil with no teacher, wow. no, no teacher, no parent. All I had to do was show up for work. I'm there for three months. And um, that was when my sister likes to say at my chip meetings, he left his Richie Cunningham and he came back as John Lennon. (laughs) (laughs) Because in Brazil, if you have money and and you're professional and you're working, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, within two months, I had three different businesses going in the hotel. I would go on the American naval ships. I'd come off with cigarettes beneath all my candy and I'm selling cigarettes on the black market. I'm doing a currency exchange in the bar at night because I got all these American money and I got all this Brazilian contos. And then I also found a, a cabbie that was giving me marijuana. So I had a marijuana thing going in the hotel. And so I'm 16 you're an years old. There's nothing wrong he was with doing that. everything but selling turkeys for Walter <clears throat> Brennan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and so speaking of Walter I, Brennan and speaking of him winning three supporting actor awards, you worked with another bona fide star who had a, a sort of a sad conclusion to her life, and that's Yvonne DiCarlo. Talk about her. She was a bona fide star before she ever did The Munsters. Yvonne was a huge star. She actually brought a lot of star power to the to the, to the the show. She dropped into television before it was fashionable, you know, before Elizabeth Taylor did General Hospital. So Yvonne, uh, her husband uh, at the time, had been seriously, seriously hurt in a stunt gone wrong. He was a stuntman. And his insurance didn't cover it. So she basically spent all of her money and savings for his medical bills and took the role of Lily Munster to uh, have a paycheck. Mm. Fred and Al, Herman and Grandpa, thought it was a bad choice. They thought she couldn't do comedy. And uh, as it turned out, it was a wonderful choice. Mm -hmm. And she brought not only star power, she brought comedy and she brought a presence to uh, the household as Lily Munster, you know, was the matriarch of the Munster mansion. And, uh, and there was a dark later, sexiness later about her. her it was later great. in her years, later in her years, she, she had, uh, she was kind of a, you know, lived by herself up in, uh, up in, uh, above Santa Maria. And a poem, a poem, I think it was called. And um, I became friends with her. We met at the Vicky, we met again on the Vicky Lawrence show. I was a surprise guest for her. Oh. And once we met, we connected and we started talking and chatting and um, during the rest, the later years of her life, Kevin Burns, who I spoke of earlier, got her into the motion picture home where she lived out her life in very, very good comfort amongst uh, her fans and friends. Oh, that's so I'm cool. glad to hear that because, you know, the, the conventional wisdom online is that she was a total recluse and separated from most people. I'm glad to hear that. And you, you also, were, was, you know, you were able to renew your relationship with Al Lewis as well, weren't you? Well, Al Lewis, yes. What happened was, is uh, when they did the Munsters' Revenge, I was like 28 years old, and they were filming in Culver City. I hadn't spoken to anybody from the show in 15 years. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine had a business. He goes, Butch, they're filming the Munsters right across the street. I go, get out of here. And they go, no, I'm seriously. Uh, so I drove down there, and I look over. I go, well, I'll be damned. There they are. So I snuck over and went right up in front of Fred and Al and caught him by surprise. <laughs> Fred never opened. Fred never opened his eyes. He, he he knew my voice. And Al was all excited to meet me again. So we reconnected. When I did Eddie and the Monsters, uh, which was the band that I had when MTV came on the air, I recruited Al to help me do some marketing and promotion, which he obliged me. And that was right when conventions were starting to happen and Comic-Cons were starting to fire up. And Al and I started doing personal appearances. And then we recruited Pat Priest, Marilyn Munster. Mm-hmm. And um, we became buddies and saw each other several times a year. That's cool. 
Now, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but according to the Internet, you were recently testifying at a murder trial. Yeah, it was it was basically uh, a place called Monster Hall that I had been visiting and there was a murder. I wasn't there, but the person who was accused of doing it was trying to deflect blame. I went up, I appeared. That was they never thought I was doing it, but I went through the formalities. And uh, yeah, I went up and they were convicted and I was um, I don't know. I wasn't really charged, so it's not being acquitted. It was just I was a witness that mm-hmm. uh, t- testified. I think what they did, what the defense attorneys tried to do, is just throw a bunch of like dust up in the air to confuse the jury. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you it know was, was, uh, that was one of those examples of criminal trials where even though uh, that could have been disaster for your career and your character, you can't sue. When, when any of that stuff comes up at a criminal trial, it's against the law to sue. But I thought, man, I mean, you were somebody with public notoriety. That could have been really damaging your career, but was it? actually did. I was, it, was in, in, uh, it was a 16-year-old case, and eight years ago, I was two hours away from a business meeting to lock up an entire month in Long Island at a theme park to do a Halloween special, take the park over. A big paycheck, too. Two hours before they call me, they go, have you seen the Inquirer? I go, no. And I looked it up and it said murder, monster, monster, murder, bombshell, uh, monster hall, Butch Patrick accused of murder. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, and um, they said, we, you know, we don't have any problem with you, but we can't move forward with this. It's a public park. And unfortunately, it's bad press. And that old that old adage, all, all you know, there's no such thing bad press. Well, there is bad press. And that was a part of it. <laughs> there is. Wow. Right. OK, what would Eddie Munster be doing today? It's, I'm glad you asked that. I uh, last year I had a really good time touring the country with my Munster coach, and I went to uh, did some great stuff in Detroit. And I was on my way to Myrtle Beach, and in the middle there is a wonderful 96 year old theme park called Indiana Beach on Lake Schaefer above Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gentleman had come to see me, who uh, runs Park Promotions, and hired me to come through to bring my Munster coach and do meet and greets and meet people at Halloween. So I showed up at the park. I fell in love with it there in the po- in the process. It was going to be demolished and a local businessman came in at the last minute in the 11th hour and saved it. So this was the first year they were open since the pandemic and they, it was going to be demolished. So I became friends with the, uh, the powers that be the owner and the marketing people. And I'm now going to reside there and take up and do park promotions, specialty promotions in the ballroom that used to have big bands and it had rock stars and it had, I mean, the, the who played there and, and, uh, and Alice Cooper and the beach boys and Harry James and all this musical ballroom for the last 50 years is a who's who of music. So we're going to recreate a nostalgic feel to this park with musical acts in the ballroom. I'm putting my Munster cars on display, my Munster museum and collectibles and we're going to uh, bring in other celebrities like myself to do conventions. And I'm going to be in charge of all specialty uh, park promotions featuring celebrities. That's nice. real. That really suits you because you're it, you're, it does. you're a social it guy, does. but you're very, very good at hosting. You have a great demeanor. You're very calm and relaxed in, in front of a camera, in front of people, you know, and it's it's engaging and people warm to that. And that that's exactly what you should be doing. I am so I'm so excited. It's like it's like the perfect job. I've been marketing all my life because people have been hiring me to do stuff and I've been used as a tool in marketing. And now I have a chance to basically um, use all my talents and all my connections and all my friends to come to this wonderful, family friendly, affordable theme park. It's I couldn't be happier. Congratulations. That sounds wonderful. 
Do you have any follow-up questions? I don't. For our witness? I mean, I'm just, I love to meet childhood heroes, and it just makes me feel older than I am. No, you're, well, you know, Fritz, I feel like, like I know you because I've been you know, getting my oh, weather from you forever. I know it. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that very much. It's a mutual admiration society. And I, I just uh, I, I have so much respect for, you know, there, there are nightmare stories of child stars that don't come out the other end of the tunnel as successfully as you did. You got sober. You've got a great attitude. Your personality is uh, unfazed. And I it's just a pleasure to get to know you yeah. well thank you this has been a wonderful interview and you know i'm sorry it's taking place under such tumultuous world issues but i'm you know i'm happy to have been here and i really appreciate it thank you nice. all right tell us where we can find you online remind us about the groups that people can join and where they can find you on twitter and we're going to include links in our show notes for everybody in case they don't want to pull over to the side of the road and write these things down yes um i, I well i thought i had sent it to you but if not it's bp munster on twitter mm-hmm. it's lower slash the lower slash real lower slash butch lower slash patrick lower slash uh, on Instagram and Facebook, you'll have to sort of look for the the picture with me at the Daytona Beach start finish line with all my cars. And then the other one is a Manhattan Beach sunset because there's about five of them that I'm not. And uh, and then the official Munsters fan group. But you can always find me on Gmail just through Munsters.com, which is make it so simple. Yeah, it really does. And we're going to have all the links in our show notes. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us. Come in person next time and we, we can uh, you can bring us a, a lunchbox or I'll send away for one on the eBay and you can sign it for us. And that would be awesome. I'll send you a little I'll send you a little uh, live park video from when I get to Indiana Beach to say hello, please. Nice. And we'll come visit you there. That would be awesome. It sounds You're wonderful. You're always welcome. All right, here comes. Fritz is going to tell people how they can help us by reviewing our wonderful podcast. We're trying to spread the word. I mean, come on. We we have iconic television guests like Books Patrick on here, and we have what I think eighty eight episodes to this choose from. This is eighty five. Eighty five. No, this is eighty six. Eighty six episodes to choose from. If you go to mediapathpodcast.com, you'll find us. And it's important for you to watch a couple of episodes and become part of the family. And then send a review out because we need to spread the word about this. We're very proud of our shows. We have an eclectic group of guests. We have authors. We have TV stars. We have movie stars. We have ne'er do wells. We have indigent people. We have all kinds of people. But we need to get your review to spread the word. Yes, and we would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPath Podcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPath Podcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderfully entertaining guest, Butch Patrick. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Butch Patrick, and we will see you along the media path. <laughs>